0: Peculiar time of the year. when to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the bridge of Sod. The guys who work here went psycho again. What's being scared about? Welcome to October by May, the short stories of Edward T. May. Presented. By James Allen May. October by May is in a slightly experimental stage, and I need your help in deciding which way to go in the future. The last episode featured original music by Neela Pakarick, and our next episode will feature a few guest voice actors. This episode differs in structure, featuring two stories: the first, entitled Bridges, and the second, The Sequel or Adventures in Mythology number one. However, instead of playing one after the other, the two are intercut. You'll hear the beginning of Bridges, then the beginning of the sequel, and then back and forth until the end. To be clear, these two stories were written as entirely separate, completely independent of each other, and in fact were even published in different books. But I saw a potential connection between them, and I want to thank the author for approving of my experimental merging. After this episode please reach out to me over Twitter at OctoberByMay and let me know what you thought of this structure. There's one other thing I'd like to note. Telling stories that mirror current events can be tricky. It might seem that something reflective of real-world happenings is an obviously effective choice. You can play off the prevailing sentiments already present in your audience. However, this can easily backfire. Just look at what happened with the film The Hunt last fall. Well... This story concerns a catastrophic pandemic, so I want to openly acknowledge that for some it may still be too soon to enjoy a fictionalized global contagion story. But for others, this reflection of our real world may enhance its impact. Our two protagonists are each trying to solve separate mysteries, two mysteries of seemingly disparate scope. As Sam Blake races across the globe seeking the source of a potentially devastating plague, a small-town teacher tries to find the meaning in the seemingly random outbursts of a fourth grader. Usually such outbursts would be punished or ignored. But that's because classroom outbursts don't typically reveal genius-level and perhaps prophetic insights. Bridges All the world is queer save thee and me. And even thou art a little queer. Robert Owen I'd heard stories about Billy Fielding from his third-grade teacher, Janet Hayes. She described Billy as eccentric. I hadn't liked the sound of it, but despite repeated urgings, Janet wouldn't elaborate on her appraisal. You'll see would be her only response, along with a knowing wink. When Billy entered my fourth-grade classroom, I quickly found out what Janet meant. Billy was average to above-average in cognitive ability. He was a well-behaved child, well-liked by his peers and teachers. Not athletically inclined, but neither was he clumsy or inept. What made Billy eccentric? About twice a week, on average, Billy would shout answers that bore no apparent relationship to the questions being asked. The children who knew Billy did not react to his responses with ridicule. They accepted Billy much as they would accept a child with a physical disability. The children new to the school, unfamiliar with Billy, would snicker at his occasional outburst for a few weeks before they too would come to accept the situation without comment. Despite a number of medical tests, both physical and psychological, no one could explain why Billy did what he did. Least of all, Billy. When asked why he blurted out answers, he would give the standard response all children seem to be equipped with I don't know. This answer would perhaps be followed or preceded by a slight shrug. How other to describe such a child as eccentric? Although Billy rarely shouted out his bizarre answers more than a few times a week, it still took me some time to adjust to his actions. After I made the adjustment, I became fascinated with the situation. I began taking notes concerning the days of the week, time of day, etc., when his outburst occurred. I thought a pattern might become apparent and I would be able to solve the riddle that had eluded all the medical professionals and Billy's parents as well. Halfway through the school year, I could find no discernible pattern, but I continued to keep notes. Then, on a frigid day in February, I understood Billy. I had bridged the gap at last. The breakthrough came during math. The answer to a multiplication problem was the number 8,848,000. Billy immediately shouted, Hillary. It seemed at first blush, like all of Billy's answers, nonsensical. Yet, the number seemed vaguely familiar for some reason. At lunch, I thought about what I'd read or watched on television for the past few days. Other than a few old movies, I'd watched nothing on television. I was in the habit of reading the newspaper every morning, and wondered if perhaps that was where I'd seen the number 8,848,000, or one like it. Then I remembered I'd also read a magazine earlier in the week, one that specialized in geography. I pulled it out of the desk and began leafing through the slick pages. Towards the end of the magazine, I found what I'd been looking for in the caption of a picture. It was the number 8,848, the height of Mount Everest in meters. Of course, in millimeters, that would be 8,848,000. Arguably, the most famous person to have climbed every one of those 8,848,000 millimeters was Sir Edmund Hillary. Was it possible that Billy's answers were not random nonsensical outbursts after all? I grabbed my notes and started looking for more examples. On January 20th at 9.15 a.m., during an oral geography quiz, Billy gave an answer of 1,115 in response to the question, What is the capital of New York? I thought about the incident. It had only been the previous week. I looked up Albany in an atlas and dismissed the notion the city might be 1,115 meters above sea level. Could it be... Horizontal distance rather than vertical? A quick check proved Albany was more than 1,115 meters from our little community of Deerfield. More than 1,115 miles for that matter. I wondered, had Billy really said 1,115? No, he'd said 1,115. I reread the notes. The incident had occurred on January 20th at 9.15 a.m. I felt dizzy. Instead of saying 9.15, couldn't we say 9.15? That means 1115 would be 11.15, which would have been the time in Albany during our geography session, as we are two hours behind the East Coast. I examined the incident prior to January 20th. It occurred on January 14th, At 9.05 a.m. during geography, Billy had responded with an answer of 3977 when asked to name the nation's capital. This answer certainly could not be related to time, not even military time. What then? A measure of distance? Certainly not miles. Kilometers, maybe? I walked over to the wall map and measured out the distance between Deerfield and Washington, D.C., and found kilometers was out of the running as well. I studied the map. Not elevation, obviously. Possibilities began scrolling through my head. A partial zip code, perhaps? Too long for an area code. Could it be surface area? Then I noticed the numbers along the side of the map and across the bottom. Washington, D.C. straddled the 77th degree of west longitude and was a lot closer to the 39th degree of north latitude than either the 38th or 40th, 39 degrees north latitude, and 77 degrees west longitude, or as Billy would say, 3977. And before that, January 10th at 10.33 a.m. during math. In the process of solving a subtraction problem on the chalkboard, I'd accidentally placed the larger number on bottom. The answer to the problem was negative 40, a number that would have meant nothing to anyone in the class as fourth graders have no knowledge of negative numbers. Before I could correct the mistake, Billy shouted out, Valdez Peninsula. What could that signify? Coldest temperature on record? Where the heck was the Valdez Peninsula anyway? I checked the Atlas and found it was in South America, not just anywhere in South America, but the lowest point on the continent at 40 meters below sea level. THE SEQUEL, OR ADVENTURES IN MYTHOLOGY, NUMBER ONE For the chief malady of man is a restless curiosity, about which things he cannot understand. Pascal, Ponce Only the curious have, if they live, a tale worth telling at all. Alistair Reed, Curiosity Samuel Blake, deputy director of the World Health Council, threaded his way through the crowd thronging the hallway as he hurried toward the operations center for the World Health Council. An urgent call from Max Washburn, the chief of operations for the European division, initiated Sam's frantic dash. The double doors leading to the operations center opened obligingly as Sam approached. The atmosphere inside the center could best be described as controlled panic. Workers jabbered excitedly as updates on the situation filtered down through the various channels of communication. Messengers darted through the darkened interior like minnows in a pond. The department heads, disheveled and haggard, clustered around the electronic world map extending the entire length of the east wall. Max! What's all this? Sam began breathlessly. A quick glance at the wall map abruptly silenced Sam. He gaped in horror as he noted the entire lower half of Greece, including Athens, enveloped in livid red, indicating a disaster of epic proportions. Even as Sam watched, the deadly crimson blossom leapfrogged the Aegean and landed in Turkey. Talk to me, Max, what's going on? Sam demanded. The first word we received came from a small hospital on the island of Mykonos, Max explained. A woman was admitted after exhibiting signs of a skin rash. The attending physician initially diagnosed the problem as an allergic reaction, but before long, it became obvious her problem was more serious. Max stopped long enough to loosen his tie and swallow a gulp of cold coffee. Within an hour, her flesh began to disappear. Flesh-eating virus? Sam interrupted. Max quickly shook his head. No, that's not what I mean. Max protested as he removed his glasses and pinched the bridge of his nose in frustration. Come on, Max, what exactly do you mean? Sam urged. We've got to get going on this thing! Max replaced his glasses. I mean, the woman's body began to... dissolve, literally dissolve. Sam, there's nothing like this in any database. It's completely new, Max assured him. Sam peered at the map. It's fast, too, Sam. Moves like wildfire, Max noted. Eight hours after exposure, the entire body is totally dissolved into a... biotic puddle. Sam stared in shocked disbelief, his mind grappling with the information Max was feeding him. The details are still sketchy, but it appears to be an airborne contagion, Max continued. It seems to infect everyone it comes into contact with, and we've had no reports of survivors. We've got to try and keep the news services from getting hold of this, Sam announced. Can you imagine the panic? They've cooperated so far, Max said optimistically. We need to get an investigative team to Ground Zero ASAP, Sam commanded. It's already been assembled. It's only waiting for your approval, Max informed him. Sam nodded. Good. Where am I going? Sam demanded. Where are you going? Max said with some agitation. I'll be going with the team, Sam responded with determination. I've got to, Max, you know that. Max disapproved of Sam's decision, but knew it was useless to argue. We've been able to determine Ground Zero is the island of Cyrus and the Aegean, Max said. The initial victim was involved in an archaeological operation on the island. The Aegean? Sam mused out loud. Why the Aegean? I'd expect something like this to come out of the rainforests of Africa or the Southeast Asian swamps, but the Aegean? Max could only shrug his shoulders in response. I'd better get moving, Sam said as he turned and headed for the double doors. Good luck, Sam, Max called after him. Sam looked back over his shoulder and managed a perfunctory nod by way of reply. I had dozens of examples to check out, But it seemed as if Billy was not just shouting out meaningless answers completely uncoupled from the questions. He was making connections, pointing out relationships, building bridges between abstract numbers, concrete geophysical quantities, historical figures, and who knew what else? How he was able to perform this feat was another matter entirely. Make no mistake, this wasn't just some parlor trick. Was it possible he possessed some type of photographic memory? Was he able to simply look at a map and remember all the data? Even if I was willing to concede that point, and I wasn't, it wasn't only a matter of memory. He was able to assimilate data from different categories instantaneously. And, as I was soon to learn, some of his answers were based on knowledge that couldn't possibly be stored in his memory. From then on, it became a game, at least from my perspective. When Billy would shout an answer, I would immediately begin seeking the associated variable. It took me anywhere from a few minutes to a matter of weeks to find the relationship. Sometimes, on the tougher ones, I'd repeat the question to Billy, hoping he would respond with a different answer, a different clue I could utilize to solve the problem. Most of the time, he would simply give me the same answer as the rest of the class, but once in a great while, he would give me the original answer. Every so often, I would give him his own answer just to see how he would handle it. Invariably, he would respond by giving me the question I'd asked in the first place. No matter how tough it was to find the relationship between my questions and his answers, I was always successful. Until March 31st at 10 AM. I was teaching the class how to solve a problem involving the operations of multiplication and addition by posing the following. 33 plus 50 times two equals 133. When Billy yelled out, Pine Valley is the answer. I couldn't fathom what that might mean. Pine Valley was the name of a high school a few miles away from our school. It certainly enrolled more than 133 students. Couldn't be surface area, at least not in feet. Could the school have been in operation for 133 months? I decided to wrestle with that one later, and wrestle I did all that evening and into the night, but still came up with nothing. The next afternoon, about 1.45, we were informed there had been yet another school shooting. This one, at Pine Valley. The official police timeline of events noted the first shots had been fired at 1.33 p.m. No wonder I'd been unable to figure out the relationship. It hadn't existed yet. This feat of Billy's shocked me more than my initial discovery back in February. It literally took my breath away. Billy's knowledge, his database, actually extended into the future. His ability possessed a temporal dimension as well. He could build bridges across time. As important as this revelation was, it was equally noteworthy this particular situation involved a tragedy. Billy's previous answers, the fantastic circumstances notwithstanding, had been uniformly prosaic. When Billy bridged to the future, was he only able to do so when a tragedy was in the offing? The Pine Valley incident seemed to merit an asterisk next to it. I continued to document Billy's occasional forays into the mysterious realm where he was able to make these fantastic associations, right up to the last day of school. I fully intended to write a book over the summer, but the project died a morning for reasons that will soon become obvious. The helicopter touched down at the main camp of the archaeological dig sponsored by the Athens Museum of History. Protective tarps, placed over excavation sites, billowed in the rotor wash. The investigative team, clad in protective suits, disembarked and headed for the expedition leader's tent. As the rest of the team began their duties, Sam began an inspection of the belongings of Elaine Aridnap, the chief archaeologist. After unearthing a vast array of artifacts, The archaeologists were careful to catalog and neatly pack each item. Sam found coins, urns, figurines, and tools, crated and ready for shipment to a museum in Athens. Aridnap's work area was littered with maps and memorandums. A notebook bound in leather, nearly buried among the paperwork, caught Sam's eye. It proved to be a journal of the day-to-day activities of the scientists. Sam learned, with the exception of Aridnap, the entire crew left a week earlier for an extended holiday. Sam turned to the entry written earlier that day. Awoke this morning at five, with rash on arms. It's seven and rash is worsening. It now covers my entire body. I've decided to take the boat to Mykonos for medical attention. Sam turned to the previous day's entry. He allowed himself a glimmer of optimism as he read. Find of the century! Nothing compares, with possible exception of Schleiman's discovery of Troy, uncovered while investigating newly opened structure, accessed via the Temple of Zeus. Can't wait to see expressions of teammates when they return. Since Aridnap alone among the archaeological team contracted the illness, and since the discovery mentioned in her journal was the only untoward event since the other team member's departure, Sam knew Aridnap's find must be related in some way to the epidemic. Sam tucked the journal into a satchel hanging from his waist. Hoping to find directions to the Temple of Zeus, he scanned the other documents. When a search of the desk proved fruitless, he turned his attention to a drafting table in the rear of the tent. A dozen maps, rolled and tucked neatly into cylindrical cardboard containers, were scattered about haphazardly. Sam snatched one at random and unrolled it on the drafting table. It proved to be a plat of the entire excavation site Sam soon located the feature marked Temple of Zeus, noting it was on the far end of the site. He took the map for reference and dashed out of the tent. Sam hurried along the paths marked off by the archaeologists. Miniature clouds of dust created by his feet marked his progress. Before long, he arrived at his destination. After making one last check with his map, he tossed it aside and entered the temple. Once inside, Sam paused long enough to retrieve the flashlight hanging from his belt. After switching on the light, he began a diligent search for an opening, leading to an adjacent room. He walked slowly along the walls, inspecting each section from floor to ceiling. Toward the rear of the temple, he discovered a recessed doorway. He descended a stone stairway and found himself in a subterranean chamber approximately fourteen feet square and six feet in height. At the opposite end of the room stood a circular marble pedestal, perhaps three feet high. Placed atop the pedestal was an open chest, approximately the size of a shoebox. On the floor at the base of the pedestal was another open chest, an apparent twin to the one resting above. Sam played the flashlight beam over the room's interior. A tripod and video camera stood opposite the pedestal. Those items formed a complete inventory of the room. Mystified... Sam walked over to the pedestal and inspected the chests. Both chests were open and empty. The worksmanship on each was exquisite. Constructed of ivory and inlaid with solid gold borders, both chests bore an identical inscription meticulously written in Greek with tiny gems. Sam moved on to the camera. He pressed the power button and was surprised to see the green light illuminate. He next pushed the stop eject button. When he removed the tape from the camera, Sam noticed it was completely rewound. He replaced the tape and slid the selector switch from camera record to camera edit, and then pressed the play button. With his eye pressed as close to the camera's viewfinder as his bulky suit would allow, Sam began watching the last normal moments of Elaine Aridnip's life. Other than the Pine Valley incident, Billy had exhibited no more insight into future events, much to my disappointment, until the last day of school, June 5th. On that day, I showed each student a sample of their work they'd turned in at the beginning of the school year and asked them to compare it with a sample they'd completed in late May. Each child had to admit there was an enormous difference in the quality of the work product. I then talked about how much everyone in the class had learned and matured in the space of nine short months, and asked them to imagine the progress they would make in one year or even two. At that point, I happened to look right at Billy, and it occurred to me to ask the class what they thought the world would be like in two years, although it was only Billy's response I was interested in hearing. I don't know why I hadn't thought of using that approach before. Maybe it was a matter of not seeing the forest for the trees. Anyway, Billy was due for one of his patented outbursts, and he didn't let me down. In response to the question, what will the world be like two years from now? Billy gave the following answer. 82,944. I quickly wrote the number down and then, on a whim, I repeated the number back to him as if I was asking him a question. Instead of repeating my question, he responded with a math problem. I wrote that down as well. And after everyone had gone for the day, I began my search to discover what this mystery statistic might pretend. Although I strongly suspected the mystery number was associated with something that would change over the next two years, it wasn't necessarily so. Therefore, I began my search by checking to see if I could find 82,944 existing in any of the present tables, almanacs, etc. A daunting task, to be sure. One thing I could count on, the number applied to Earth as a whole, not one of its constituent parts. Billy had been consistent in that regard. For example, when asked to name three numbers that, when multiplied together, yielded 384, Billy had responded, Tegucigalpa. With the help of a computer program and a full month of effort, I found Billy was referring to the average number of days with rain the city of Tegucigalpa can expect each July, eight days, August, eight days, and November, six days. He could have said something like, Milwaukee, eight days in October, Venice, eight days in June, and Cape Town, six days in April. But he confined the pertinent data to only one city. So, knowing it pertained to the Earth as a whole, what could the mystery number be referring to? Was it a measure of rainfall? Surface area, mass, volume, weight, temperature, circumference, rotational speed, distance from some other heavenly body, magnetic field strength, gravitational pull, The list of potential variables was nothing short of staggering. A friend of mine created a computer program capable of scanning astronomical tables and searching for the value, 82,944. We weren't surprised when the program couldn't come up with a match for any astrophysical or geophysical quantity. Remembering that not all of Billy's answers were precise—the coordinates for Washington, D.C., for example— We created a small margin of error on either side of 82,944, which we deemed to be acceptable, and ran the program again. Still, we could find no match. Ron Crowder, director of the World Health Council, motioned for Max Washburn to be seated. A miniature version of the world map dominating the operations center twinkled on the wall behind Ron's desk. Okay, thanks, Tom. "'I'll let you know as soon as I hear something,' Ron said as he replaced the phone in its cradle and turned his attention to Max. "'What's the story on this thing, Max? I thought we had it confined to Greece and Turkey. I wish you'd let me know when things break down. Now I've got presidents and prime ministers crawling up my pants like fire ants.' "'I'm sorry, Mr. Crowder,' Max apologized. "'We did take drastic action, closing down all air, land, and sea routes surrounding the affected area. Believe me, it was a Herculean task.' requiring the cooperation of the armed forces of half a dozen countries. "'Yes, yes. I realize you did your best,' Ron said sympathetically as he began pacing. "'One commercial airliner ruined our plans,' Max sighed, on a route from Athens to New York with a stopover in London. I know this must sound callous, but we were hoping the flight would never make it to London. After all, this disease is fast-acting.' A dead pilot in a water landing would have been best for everyone. However, the pilot apparently contracted the illness during the flight because he remained unaffected until touchdown in London. Why wasn't it quarantined once it got to Heathrow? Ron demanded to know. Believe me, sir, we were ready for it. Unfortunately, one of the food service workers didn't get the word. He offloaded the food carts and the disease right along with them. Ron shook his head and turned his attention to the map. What's this, Mark? Ron waved his finger at a crimson splotch in France, resembling a ruptured pustule. It seems to be along the flight path, but we know for a fact the plane didn't stop there. We think the plane released the contents of the lavatories at that point, Max explained with an ill-concealed wince. Ron shook his head again. Do you know there's actually talk about creating a cordon sanitaire with nuclear weapons around the affected areas? Ron confessed. Max bowed his head so he couldn't see the map behind Ron's desk, the city of London flaring red like an angry welt. What's the word from Sam? Ron said hopefully. Did he find out how this thing started? Max Washburn's head sank a trifle lower at Ron's question. I'm afraid Sam committed suicide. Max mumbled. Ron could only gape in astonishment. Max placed a package on the desk. Ron reached for the item. The other team members confirmed he committed suicide. Apparently, after viewing this tape, Max said dejectedly. Ron pursed his lips and drew his hand away from the tape momentarily upon hearing the explanation from Max. Then, with renewed determination, Ron grasped the tape and marched over to the VCR located in the corner of his office. He thrust the tape into the player and returned to his seat behind the desk. Soon, the television screen flickered to life, okay. and an attractive brunette began narrating. Journal entry number 39. That's Elaine Arinap. Max informed Ron After much deliberation, she was the initial victim. The conclusion. film showed Elaine standing next to the marble pedestal. The chest wasn't. resting on top of the pedestal remained closed, while the lid of the chest on the ground was open. When I first realized the nature of this discovery, I was in a state of shock. Elaine related. All I could think of was the notoriety it would bring the team, the books and articles, the docudramas, etc., etc. However, as time passed, I began to consider the ramifications, the consequences, and I began to lose sleep. I began agonizing over the decision I made. I began asking myself if I had the right to make a decision on my own when it could potentially involve the population of the entire world. At first, as you can well imagine, I was anxious to open it. I reasoned the two chests were, by nature, opposites. It was possible the one opened previously contained the evil aspects, and the one remaining unopened contained the curative. This particular hypothesis appealed to my sense of justice, to the idea of symmetry, uh, a balance in the universe. Then, I thought of another eventuality. Was it possible, maybe even probable, they both contained misery? That was a favorite ploy of the gods, to jest with man, to entice him with the hope of winning while all the time the deck was stacked against him, witness Sisyphus and Tantalus for proof. (sighs) My final decision was prompted by a look at the world around me. The roll call of miseries is extensive to say the least. How could it get any worse? Don't you see? I had to believe it was an antidote to the ills of mankind and not a supplement. It is my sincere belief I'm acting in the best interests of humanity, and not for self-aggrandizement. If the consequences of my actions prove to be beneficial, I won't need to worry about the negative feedback. However... If my actions should unleash more evil, please realize I meant well. You may condemn me for poor judgment, and you would be justified in your condemnation, but accusations of selfishness would be groundless. Elaine turned to the unopened chest and gently lifted the lid. She then walked over to the camera and turned it off. What was that all about? Ron commented with obvious irritation. Max sat in his chair, slowly shaking his head. I'm not sure. He finally muttered. Those two boxes had some type of writing on them, didn't they? Ron asked. Max grabbed the remote and rewound the tape. Yeah, they sure do. Right there, see? Max said. Well, what does it say? Ron demanded. Beats me, Max responded. It looks like Greek. Well, where's the representative from the museum's antiquity department? Ron thundered as he reached for the intercom and buzzed his secretary. Barbara, where's, uh, what's his name? Uh, Papopoulos, Keith Papopoulos. I'll send him in as soon as I can locate him, Mr. Crowder, Barbara replied courteously. One of the biggest challenges associated with Billy's answers had always been finding the units they were couched in. If 82,944 represented a distance, for example, It could be anything from qubits to light years. Since the astronomical tables use standard units, we tinkered with the computer program yet again so it would convert the values given in standard units to, well, to every other unit we could think of. Of course, there weren't necessarily any units attached to the numbers Billy gave. For instance, I once asked the class to name the 16th president of the United States, and Billy answered, 79. I immediately began wondering if Lincoln had been 79 inches tall or weighed 79 kilograms. After days of fruitless research, I finally realized that Billy had simply assigned a number value to each letter of Lincoln according to its place in the alphabet. L equals 12, I equals 9, N equals 14, and so on. The sum of those numbers turned out to be 79. But I felt there was something special about 82,944. I kept remembering Pine Valley. It was the only other time Billy had given an answer that bridged to the future, and it involved a tragic incident. I doubted 82,944 would be as simplistic and banal as the Lincoln puzzle. We had to assume there were units attached to the mystery number. We ran the program again, day and night for months, and came up with a blank. I was about to give up when I noticed the math problem i jotted down next to Billy's mystery number. Billy had given me the problem after I'd thrown 82,944 back at him as if it were a question. The problem involved a factorial. That was an oddball even by Billy's standards. In addition, the very fact he'd given me the problem had been an atypical response. As I've already stated, on a few occasions I would repeat Billy's answer back to him, hoping he would divulge yet more information. When I'd used this tactic, Billy had invariably responded by giving me my original question. If he'd followed his previous pattern, he should have said, what will the Earth be like two years from now? He'd given me a math problem instead. I was beginning to feel uneasy about where this particular scenario was headed. I looked at the problem again. 13 factorial subtracted from 78,912 squared. It appeared to entail some fairly large numbers, and for some reason, that fact increased my anxiety. I performed the calculation and, as expected, came up with 82,944. I studied the individual factors for a moment, both of them 6 billion and change. Six billion. It had a familiar ring to it. Then I felt myself growing numb. Ron stood and began pacing the room as Max continued his examination of the film. I just remembered. Sam could read Greek, Max mused. He could read Greek, and he committed suicide after seeing this film. Ron stopped pacing and looked at Max. I don't have a good feeling about this, Max confessed. Don't be too pessimistic, Max. I know how you felt about Sam, but... Oh, there you are, Keith. Ron said as Keith Papopoulos entered the room. What can I do for you, Mr. Crowder? Keith said. Your expertise is required, Keith. Can you please translate the inscription shown on these two boxes? Ron asked as he pointed out the chests on the film. Max paused the film as Keith moved closer to the screen. Hmm. Interesting. Keith mused. May I? He said to Max as he reached for the remote. Please. Max responded. I tweaked the computer program once more. This time... I didn't bother to look for 82,944, but rather for the values of 13 factorial and 78,912 squared. And this time, I didn't bother comparing them with astronomical tables. I was sure the information I was looking for was contained in the almanac. The program only ran for a few minutes before it came up with a match for 78,912 squared. It was a projection, an estimate, for two years in the future. But Billy knew something the compilers of the Almanac didn't know. Billy knew the quantity 13 factorial would be subtracted from the quantity 78,912 squared at some point over the next two years, leaving a paltry figure of 82,944. Keith fiddled with the image on the screen until it showed the lettering clearly. It appears to be the same on both boxes. Keith informed Ron and Max. Keith slowly turned, eyeing both men narrowly, his features etched with uncertainty. "'Is this?' Keith began, his voice laced with suspicion. "'Are you guys putting me on?' Keith finally asked in a whisper. Ron rounded on the younger man. "'We've got tens of thousands of people already dead, thousands more dying, while the potential of this epidemic is unlimited!' Now I learn my deputy director committed suicide after viewing this very tape. No, Keith, this is certainly no joke. I'm sorry, Mr. Crowder. Keith quickly apologized. But this is so bizarre, I assumed... Well, surely you can't blame me for... What does it say? Max pleaded. Keith hesitated once again before responding. Well, roughly translated, it says... Property of Pandora. I wanted to reject the results, to sweep all the scribbled figures off the pad and into the trash and and smash the computer. I wanted to forget the matter entirely. But I couldn't. I couldn't. Because I was certain, as certain as I've ever been about anything, that the number 82,944 represented the population of the Earth in two years. Once again, I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at Octoberbymay.com for more info. As well as links to the books by Edward T. May. Bridges by Edward T. May. The Sequel or Adventures in Mythology, Number One by Edward T. May. Recitation and Audio Design by James Allen May. Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi.